It's Muppeturgy, and we're coming to you poolside for a very special episode about the Muppets Go Hollywood! Hooray! Hi everyone, welcome back. Surprise, we are doing a bonus episode between seasons. Bet you didn't see that coming, even though we very much said that we were going to do exactly this in our last episode. I'm David Levy, I'm so glad you're here. I'm also glad that the following folks are here. Christy Bauer. Adam Grossworth. And Michal Richardson. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Hollywood, California, and this is the historic Coconut Grove. No place on earth more completely symbolizes the glitter and glamour of the entertainment world. And here tonight, history will be made again, for a party is being held to celebrate the meteoric rise of one small frog. A frog who started life in a common swamp and went on to become the world's only green superstar in his first motion picture, The Muppet Movie. The celebrities of the world are gathering here, drawn as if by magnets to this stupendous event. For tonight, we will see the unimaginable ladies and gentlemen the muppets go hollywood wow i'm gonna follow that okay we're covering the muppets go hollywood and before we get into our feelings about the muppets go hollywood we should probably tell you our listeners just what exactly is the muppets go hollywood so as you may remember we here at muppeturgy are currently between seasons three and four of the muppet show So in our timeline, this is when the Muppet movie was released, between seasons three and four of The Muppet Show. The Muppet movie debuted in the UK on May 31st, 1979, and in the US on June 22nd, 1979, which brings us to The Muppets Go Hollywood. So this was a primetime television special designed to build hype for the film, and it featured the Muppets hosting a party, not entirely unlike a movie premiere at the world-famous Coconut Grove Nightclub in Hollywood. Yeah, the Coconut Grove Nightclub in Hollywood was in the Ambassador Hotel, and it was world famous. But in 1979, it was, I gather from research, I was not there, a shithole, um, to, to put it mildly. Hollywood, the neighborhood, not not such a nice place in the 70s and 80s. And, um, you not know, such a place, nice place now. <laughs> Sure, sure. Um, but in a different way. Um, sure. More Elmo's. I think it's like pretty analogous to, yeah, to Times Square, I think, uh, also with the Elmo's. Um, you know, in terms of like being kind of seedy, kind of run down. Um, and, you know, what they're, what they're going for in that intro and what they're really capturing in the special as well is, um, you know, this like sort of 30s, 40s, you know, old Hollywood glitz and glamour. Um, which the nightclub was representative of, um, you know, Copacabana would be like a New York equivalent, but it was not that anymore. And um, it was still running and it was, you know, mostly used for things like this, for film shoots um, and and the like. Um, it was attached to the Ambassador Hotel, which is uh, largely notable for being where RFK was assassinated. So, you know, whole bunch of stuff. Um, the Hollywood sign had just been put back <laughs> Um, after being in horrible disrepair, you know, like literally like days or weeks before. So, you know, this is this is the very fake scene that we are in that that overwrought intro is is trying to get us uh, psyched about. So one thing that is notable about this choice is that in its uh, earlier heyday, the Coconut Grove did host the Oscars a few times. So I think that this was as much a you know, cashing in on old Hollywood nostalgia choice as it probably was a, it's real easy to film there because nobody wants to be there <laughs> choice is my guess. 
Definitely. And, you know, my, I have two real points of reference for the Coconut Grove. One, which maybe is familiar to you, either you, my co-host, or you, the listener, which is there's a Looney Tunes cartoon from 1936 called Cuckoo Nut Grove, uh, where it takes place at the Coconut Grove and is parodies of all of the great film stars of 1936, which, uh, you know, as a child in the 80s watching caricatures of Clark Gable and Mae West and Tulula the Bankhead, uh, let me tell you, veritable laugh riot. Where's my bug's money? <laughs> um, but but I, I I suspect uh some of you may be familiar with that cartoon as well. And of course, it's also where Judy Garland recorded her 1959 album, Garland at the Grove. And actually, there's there are quite a few live albums uh recorded there because it was in its heyday the place where stars wanted to uh, see and be seen, and, and and it's also a place where people got discovered. It's where Bing Crosby was first discovered uh, and plucked from uh, the anonymity of a singing group into Hollywood fame. Prior to this moment in time in the late 70s, it did have uh, sort of a last gasp at relevancy where Sammy Davis Jr., took it over in the early seventies and tried to make it into like a hip seventies club uh, and failed, lost a lot of money. And then after him, it did have a last gasp as sort of uh, a kind of pale imitation of what it might have been. And I only mentioned this because in Wikipedia describing this era, it was like, yeah, the best they could do was acts like Kay Ballard. Oh, rude. That's so sad. (laughs) Which I think was more of a comment on how much she cost to book her and not about the quality of her talent. But even so. What has she done to you? Also, I would be remiss if if I didn't mention the Singing in the Rain connection because – Kathy Selden at the beginning of the movie works as a dancer at the Coconut Grove. There you go. I think, you know, we'll get into this more. I, I suspect the choice of venue was also um, at least somewhat a budget issue. Uh, and, you know, we haven't said this yet. Don't watch this. We'll put a link, a YouTube <laughs> link in our on our webpage. D- don't watch this. We're going to tell you about it. We're going to play some clips. We, I, I, I think it's... Oh, I don't know. I think if you... Well, I think there are two ways to enjoy this. One, if you really love the celebrities of the 70s, particularly the B-list celebrities and C-list celebrities of the 70s, it can be fun to try to name the name. Yeah, and I mean, I, was, I was charmed by it in the end. But also, I think that it's the kind of thing where if you lean a little heavy on the fast forward and go like just to the parts with Muppets, yeah. uh, then it's, but yeah, it's I think- good. Like, and there are a couple of like really special moments that... Yeah, but I think for you know, I think I think the logistics of doing what they were doing with Muppets and filming and getting all those people in and you know doing that within whatever constraints they had, I think they needed a venue like this that they could fully take over and you know and and do this. And I think a a a a slightly rundown and available venue was what they got, which is actually really true to to the ethos of the Muppet movie and show. So you know that kind of all works. And even Kermit worries at the beginning that he's overspent on this and says he was thinking that maybe he should just do this at a bowling alley. Yeah. Yeah, which would have been sweet. We have yet to explain what it is that we're watching when we watch this special. <laughs> um, <love> that. <laughs> it's a bunch of celebrities gathered for a party at the Coconut Grove and also a bunch of Muppets and also our hosts, Dick Van Dyke and Rita Moreno, the celebrity hosts. 
Two great tastes that go great together. Who doesn't love Rita's? And Tick. (laughs) (laughs) Christy started it. Did she? (laughs) I also blew the joke, but... Well, you what now? <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I was gonna offer a second take, but now we can't yeah. do that. <laughs> now we're stuck with it, right? Rita and Richard, <laughs> Dick to his friends, uh, they're holding microphones. They're talking to the cameras. They're telling us. I hear he's very nice to his friends. We're never gonna get through this. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Dick Van Dyke and Rita Moreno uh, are our guides for the evening. They're pointing their microphones into the faces of various celebrities, and those various celebrities often don't seem to have much to say, (laughs) which raises a lot of questions about whether this was staged or scripted or which parts they chose to script. It gets a little confusing. There are also musical numbers and some banter pretty much at the level of very sticky awards shows. There's a sneak peek at some footage from the Muppet movie. Um, There's some songs from the film. I think that I already talked over the bit that would have been the great comedy shtick clip. I'm sorry. Some great comedy shtick. Yeah, not unlike an episode of the Muppet show, but much stickier. On the question of whether this was a party that they also filmed or whether this was more of a scripted filmed experience that is set up to look like a party. I wonder if it's an actual party and like they were the guests and they got to have food and drink and dancing. If that affects how many of them actually had to get paid. I don't know how, how uh, I guess at the time after rules applied to things like this, where, uh, you know, presumably the people who are doing scripted bits get paid because they're acting but otherwise, is it more like a news broadcast? Is this more like, uh, you know, when you cover the red carpet? Right. Like, does everyone who gets interviewed on the red carpet get yeah, you, paid? You don't get, I don't think you so. You don't get paid for going on the Golden Globes, right? Like, I, I, I don't think, not. right? So, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting question. Because um, they do get a show, right? I want to, I think we'll talk about this a little bit later. But, right, they are, they are definitely watching a performance, and most of them don't have to do anything except be there. And they are they do appear to be drinking, including the Muppets. So And according to Muppet Wiki, there's even a number of celebrities who we know were at this party who don't even appear on camera at all. Right. Too many So I can't imagine that they paid these people to not be in right. the special. And this was also like the height of of the Muppets fame really. Right. So I think, you know, I mean, people, people would do a lot for, for Jim and the Muppets. So I I could imagine they would just be like, yeah, sounds like a fun night. And maybe they got paid after minimum, which could not have been very much at the time. And I don't know whether it's cheaper to host a a catered party with wait staff and everybody sitting around tables and having dinner or (laughs) to pay everybody. Yeah. We don't really see any food. We do, we do see alcohol. We don't see food. We see food in front of Sattler Waldorf. <laughs> and they ask Peter Falk how the food is, but that's yeah. neither here nor there, really. And, you know, Fozzie eats a napkin. Well, on that note. Why don't you get so, David, this is your fault. Um, how did you even know about this? 
why wouldn't I know about this? This is our job. Uh, sure. <laughs> to know Had you seen things. this before? Had this was this was just from your No, and to be honest, so this is the Muppets Go Hollywood, and then before the Great Muppet Caper, they did a much better special called The Muppets Go to the Movies. And I think I maybe had them confused with each other when I proposed doing this as well this episode. That, that explains uh, some things. Um, so, no, I I don't think I have seen this at all. I think we were just coming to the end of season three, and I was thinking, what do we want to do as a potential bonus episode? And this seemed like it made sense. My previous experience with this is listening to other Muppet podcasts talk <laughs> about it. it. It was included as part of the syndication package, for the Muppet Show. So it is in theory possible that I and some of our listeners have seen this on TV because it did appear in reruns, but none of it was particularly familiar except for a couple, like I had seen Miss Piggy's number because it came up in our discussion of a previous Muppet Show episode. So I went and looked for it on YouTube. Uh, but otherwise this was, this was all new, all new to me. Christy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this was completely new to me, too. And part of my bias against it, I mean, I had a fine time, but the versions of it that are extant on YouTube are not great quality. They're really kind of washed out, and there are a lot of times where it's like you can't tell who the celebrities are, and and for people like us, that's maddening. Yeah. <laughs> um. And, it, and it's just because, like, you can barely make out their faces sometimes. So putting that aside, you know, I'm a sucker for, you know, old Hollywood glam. You know, I'm I'm an Oscars nut. You know, like, like all of that stuff was really in my wheelhouse. But, you know, like you guys, I've spent a sizable amount of this wondering how it was constructed and why it was constructed. <laughs> And my theory is that they planned the event as a premiere, as a, you know, performance thing, got enough footage that they thought, oh, we, we can build this out a bit. And then they added stuff to it later because th there are several shots of things with the Muppets where nobody in the background is famous. Michal, how about you? Uh, I have no history of watching this. I have probably listened to a Muppet podcast discuss this at some point. Uh, my overall thought is this is fun enough, especially if you watch it sped up on YouTube, which is what I did for almost all the times I watched it. And also, Rita Moreno is a great sport. Yeah, I I mean, same. I, I had never heard of it uh, until David brought it to us and i i then when he did i i was also confused it with the other one uh which we should make and, an episode you know, about which we yeah we should do that when we get there um you know it's it's definitely relevant to my interest right we, when we talk about the the papers and some of the bonkers ads for this kind of stuff um every week uh i was not sad to watch this and it it really grew on me over time and i think what i decided is that this was a trick that jim pulled because I, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, maybe we haven't, that um, for years he was trying to do a live stage show, he was trying to do a Vegas show. Um, I think he tried to do a Broadway show, right? Or was that after he died that other people tried to do a Broadway yes. show? Um, he, he tried to do, a, it sometimes is talked about as a Lincoln Center show, but one way or another, right. some kind of Broadway style. Uh, which people are still trying to make happen. Midtown New York. So, I mean, 
there's actually a lot of that. There's, so one of the things that happens in this is that, um, you know, there are live stage Muppet performances for this audience of celebrities. Presumably, we don't necessarily see them at the same time, but I'm going to assume <laughs> that the folks we see in the special were in the room to watch that at least. And so I think in a way that Jim was like, oh, we can do my stage show, but we're going to trick the studio into paying for it by making it promo for the movie and, and the network into paying for it by making it a sweeps event. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, and I think he sort of pulled it off. Uh, I wish there were more of that, and I bet that the people in the room also wish there were more of that. But um, you know, I think that th- those parts of it were fun, and as, as an artifact of, oh my god, you could put anything on TV in 1979 and people would watch it. It's it's also pretty fun. It's sort of wild to me that, um, like, we talk now about like. You know, there's so much content and there's so many streaming services and all these things. And like there were three networks back then and some stuff in syndication. And somehow like this was the best they could do. <laughs> like it's just it it's sort of insane to me that they they didn't actually have to make that much stuff, and yet the bar was so low. Because I guess just because anybody you, there wasn't that much choice and anybody would watch whatever you put on, but it's still sort of amazing to me. And it was a star-studded event. People probably tuned in yeah. expecting Ethel Merman to do something. And then she just showed up for a second and a half. How thrilling that you might catch a glimpse of Nancy McKeon. <laughs> Did you? Because I didn't. <laughs> Here is a Muppet News flash. Okay, so uh, this special was produced in April of 1979, several months after The Muppet Show Season 3 wrapped. Uh, according to Imagination Illustrated, the Jim Henson Journal, a book I own but have not read, which is a running theme of this podcast, the party was shot on April 6, 1979. Uh, this aired in the United States, all of it, on Wednesday, May 16, 1979. It was on a network on CBS, not syndicated, so there's only one date for this, uh, and a week later in the UK. This was in New York, two days after the Roger Miller episode, and two weeks before the end of the season. So uh, folks at the time still had the Roy Rogers, Dale Evans episode and the Lynn Redgrave episode. Um, Another thing I find wild about this is that the Muppet movie will be released on June 22nd. So we've got, what is that, five weeks to go before you can actually see the thing that this is promoting, which is not how I feel that would work today. They would be the same weekish. Um, but okay. Um, we've talked about sweeps before, uh, on television and this was in May and this was sweeps. Um, I like have the term sweeps week in my head and maybe sweeps shrunk by the time it was a thing I was aware of. But so I Googled, um, like when was May sweeps week 1979 and actually found an article in the New York times from June of 79, which we'll put on the webpage, um, complaining about sort of both explaining and complaining about, uh, sweeps, um, which does mention the special in passing. It was the entire month of May and the entire month of November. Um, and so it, it gets into all of this and, you know, all of the networks just desperately being like, please don't change the channel. Please watch us. Please, please, please don't change the channel in between our shows. Um, and it, I, that's what this was. That's why this was there as well as to promote the movie. So in the news, we've covered this week very recently on the podcast, but it's a different day. So here are some things from the paper. Um, the front page is the usual, the energy crisis, President Carter, the Soviet Union, blah, blah, blah. Um, but here's a thing I found kind of interesting. Harvard tightens graduation rule and de-emphasizes survey courses. 
Harvard University unveiled its long-awaited core curriculum today. The new curriculum is a radical departure from established methods of undergraduate education. It sets tougher standards for graduation and, for the first time, requires Harvard students demonstrate proficiency in writing, mathematics, and the use of computers. Um, I mean, this seems fairly relevant to most of our lives, even the three of us who did not go to Harvard. (laughs) That's definitely how my college curriculum worked. But it was on the front page, (laughs) which I found wild. And well, part of it is that when Harvard makes changes like this, it usually means that the rest of the colleges in the country. Oh, are excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> the cutting yes, edge. I mean, it, it, that's just true. true. I mean, I mean, that's it, you know, it, it, you know, it's also true. More recently, when uh, they made changes to how they considered test scores, and uh, when they made changes to financial aid, both of those things were also similarly reported because. The assumption was that other schools would soon follow suit. Right. And, you know, 35 years later, when, you know, when I was in college, not at Harvard, it, this is how my curriculum worked. So, And as a result, we're all a hit true. at cocktail parties. We would have been better at this cocktail party than Peter Falk was, that's for damn sure. <laughs> um, but still, like page two, page three, I don't know. Um, we have a follow-up to an earlier story, which I appreciated. A former Lufthansa employee was convicted of helping to plan and carry out the $6 million robbery last December at the airline's cargo terminal at Kennedy Airport. Uh, And this was, I learned, the largest cash robbery in the nation's history. Uh, None of the currency and jewels have been recovered at this point. There's an ad for the complete book of finger math. Yep. All one word. Turn your fingers into a calculator. For centuries, (laughs) fingers have been the tool of choice for counting. But now there's finger math, a technique that makes counting on your fingers both scientific and exciting. Good news, still in print, you can get it for Kindle. (laughs) I didn't, yet. Definitely thought about it. You can read it on your pocket computer about how to turn your fingers (laughs) into a calculator. (laughs) Yeah... I don't know. That feels like $10 well spent to me, but maybe that's... I'm bad at math. Um, There's like pages and pages of grocery ads, which is not a thing we get on Mondays, and I just had fun flipping through them. Uh, Also a thing we don't normally get on Mondays, but very relevant to our interests. Sorry if you don't care. Uh, Theater ads. Um, New York theater is traditionally dark on Mondays, so they don't advertise. Um, We have Al Pacino in Richard III. Bob Fosse's Dancing, which is... uh, in a revival production on Broadway currently, so that's timely. Amos Behaven, uh, a recently started uh, replacement cast, an all-black cast in Michael Stewart and Cy Coleman's I Love My Wife. Which you all may remember as the musical from which the song Hey There, Good Times originates, which we heard in the Leslie Uggams episode this season. Did they wear pants in the Broadway production? Uh, famously, no, <laughs> because it's a show about wife swapping. There's a lot of stuff that takes place in well, bed. There you go. And uh, newly Tony-nominated, uh, Marvin Hamlish and Carol Bayer Sager's Their Play on Our Song, which had a real weird ad in this paper uh, complaining about the fact that they weren't more Tony-nominated. Uh, personal favorite, Sweeney Todd, and the best little whorehouse in Texas. And Got to Go Disco starts previews in a few weeks. It also closes in a few weeks. <laughs> I knew you'd have something to say about that. I was like, I'm just going to put that in and see what uh, David comes up with. Got to go disco has got to go. On the Cashbox Pop Charts, Reunited uh, is the number one song, and Spirits Having Flown is the number one album. 
and on TV once again. It's a Wednesday at 7.30. Uh, Channel 2 in New York uh, has preceding the um, the Muppets special. Uh, Parkinson interviews the Muppets. Michael Parkinson was an English talk show host, uh, so you know, this was a, a standard UK show, not so standard here. Um, we found a couple clips of this uh, online, so we'll put those in the show notes. Um, Channel 4 had Sha Na Na, a show I was like really weirdly into uh, at the time. Do, do you guys remember Sha Na Na? Christy, you... Oh, yeah. I definitely have seen Sha Na Na in concert more than once. Amazing. Christy, it seems up your own. I've never too. seen the show, but I, I know of them mostly because of it being a game show adjacent thing because um bowser is that the guy's name yes yep was uh the shana also famously in the film of greece right they're the the band during right. the, the dance scene they are bowser was the co-host of the match game hollywood squares hour a truly excruciating game show that you wow. can currently see on buzzer <laughs> they're uh they were a, like a doo-wop tribute band uh, in much the same way that like Greece, right, was was nostalgic for the fifties, right? Not super far out from this period. Um, that played at Woodstock, which is wild, and uh-huh. also um, had a variety show during this time because they were wildly popular. Yeah. Uh, and so it was, you know, sketches and songs. Their guest this week was Chubby Checker, and I just recently learned through a Learned League question that Chubby Checker's name was a play on Fats Domino, and I am furious. What? Oh, <laughs> oh, I did not know that, but that makes sense. That makes so much sense. So angry. And I'm, yeah, I don't know why uh, I'm so annoyed, but I'm annoyed. <laughs> right, right? <laughs> uh, also at 7.30, Carol Burnett and Hollywood Squares. Uh, moving right along at 8 o'clock, The Muppets Go Hollywood. Um, NBC had a show called Real People. This week's episode, A Meeting of Neurotics Anonymous, Mr. Backwards, Visit to a High-Rise Funeral Home, and a Tour of Fredericks of Hollywood. <laughs> I sh- Okay. I thought I, t- I just read straight from the listing and I did no further research. <laughs> You're on your own. I vaguely remember that show. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a news magazine like. show, right? It's a you know, news and heavy, yeah. heavy air quotes. Uh, Channel 5 had a game show called The Crosswits. And uh, then Eight is Enough was a rerun. Um, at nine o'clock, CBS had a sweeps special, a TV production of the Kaufman and Hart play You Can't Take It With You. With Gene Stapleton, Art Carney, Barry Boswick, Blythe Danner, Marla Gibbs, Howard Hessman, Polly Holiday, Beth Howland, Kenneth Mars, Harry Morgan, and Joyce Van Patten. Sweeps. That is wild. I really want to see that. I found an ad. I actually found an ad for the Muppet special, and you can't take it with you together, um, which had a bit of a clip. I both featuring. Yeah, I, I don't know if the whole thing is out there. I didn't look very hard though. So it, I mean, that's a it's a great play. Um, and it looks, and in some ways, it makes sense to cast it with all of the sitcom stars of the day because it really is sort of the the antecedent of the American sitcom. And it looks very stagey, like it looks like like an old like an old American Playhouse kind of thing. So I like I bet it's very mm. faithful. NBC had The Sackets Part Two, a Western miniseries based on a couple of Louis L'Amour novels, and ABC had Charlie's Angels. And at 10 o'clock, uh, ABC had a Vegas rerun, or rather a Vega dollar sign rerun. The party was taped on April 6th, which was a, was a Friday, and I was just curious to see what television uh, folks who attended were missing. <laughs> the Incredible Hulk, Dukes of Hazard, Different Strokes, and a movie of Beauty and the Beast starring George C. Scott. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. 
So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. So uh, because there's a gazillion and a half guest stars in this episode, we're not going to give you a bio for all of them. Uh, however, the three top bill guest stars are Rita Moreno. You know who she is. We did a whole episode about her. Dick Van Dyke. You know who he is. He's the guy who fucked Mary Poppins and Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> it's a jolly holiday. Until the wind changes. Indeed. And the third top bill guest star is Gary Owens. You may or may not know who he is. Uh, at the time, he was probably most well-known as the announcer for Laugh-In, but he's also a prolific voiceover actor, including the original voices of Space Ghost, Blue Falcon, and somewhat later, Powdered Toast Man. Uh, he also lent his voice to a number of episodes of Sesame Street and Dinosaurs. I just feel we should clarify for the youngs that uh, he was the original Space Ghost, not the later ironic talk show host Space Ghost. Uh, there are also a gazillion cameos, as I mentioned, including a lot of former and future Muppet Show guest stars. We'll talk about them as they come up, if they come up. You can start to get the taste of how overstuffed this special is with stars during the red carpet segment. Here come the last of our guests, the very talented and very late Don DeLuise. Baseball as always. Carl Reiner, looking very confused. The very adorable Mel Brooks, with his lovely and talented wife, Anne Bancroft. If you're wondering, like, oh, wow, those are people I love. I can't wait to see them in the special. Tough shit. That's all you get from them. Oh, man. You will not. <laughs> and it's so weird, too, because I start with Don DeLuise, where you're like, oh, he's in the movie. That makes sense. And then they're like, and here's Kyle Reiner, looking confused. <laughs> right? It's also weird. It's like, that is the... F- well, he's a good pal of Dick Van Dyke, so... Well, and, and Mel Brooks is, oh, Mel Brooks not, is in the movie, I'm too. I'm not confused as to why he's there, but, the you know... The, the, it's stuff like this that makes me think that a huge swath of this was not scripted in any way. What I find weirdest about that clip in particular is that there's nothing before it. I mean, there's something before it, but there's nothing... There's no arrivals before it. So, to start out being like, you're so late... <laughs> the last ones here you're very late they're the first ones we're seeing like we don't know that it's such a weird place to go yeah at the very top of the special with the first celebrities we're seeing hey dom DeLuise, fuck you <laughs> right? man and actually the whole the entire thing opens with the clip from the beginning of the movie of dom DeLuise in the swamp so like we've already right. seen him and know he's in the movie and then they're being addicted <laughs> it's really weird there's also all of this footage all of the red carpet footage of humans feels like it could have been from anywhere. I mean, it's partly because it's, you know, it's not a great copy of the show. So it's, you know, we've talked about that, but like, I don't know where they are. Like, it's just dark. This could easily be like 12 different premieres cut together and none of them could actually be at this Muppet event. We end up seeing most of them inside later. So they are, but you know, when it started, it very much was like, did they just fake this entire thing? Did they pull a clip of Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, and Bancroft arriving at some other party? Is that what yeah, you're exactly. suggesting? Yeah, yeah, or some other, you know, some movie premiere, or some other event, which they, I mean, they could have very easily done because it's it's all just night footage. Which, to be clear, they didn't do because then the Muppets roll up in the exact same location. Well, right, but but there's 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 chunks of it, not that not that shot specifically getting a car, but there's a bunch of footage of of stars just milling about where at least in this version on youtube we can't really see what's what's in the background um and i feel like they could be anywhere they did have however just like walls of 
fans and photographers, some of whom look like they could not be more bored to be standing behind Dick Van Dyke watching the Muppets <laughs> in close proximity. Well, I mean, I do imagine, like, this probably took a while, especially the parts, just logistically, the parts with the Muppets. And I bet they were, right? They were probably kind of bored. I mean, they should yeah. have been doing a better job if they were tired to be there. But Especially if they'd been shooting all day and they had to do this outdoor crowd scene at night. So they probably wanted to go home. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business? So we've already started to go through the special, and we're not going to go through every moment of it. Uh, we will cover the songs in the next segment. And there are a lot of just little bits of shtick, and we'll talk about the ones we find interesting. So we've talked about the celebrities arriving with seemingly no forethought or order. <laughs> but we do know that the Muppets arrive last at their own party. They pull up in a series of limousines, except for Kermit and Fozzie, who pull up in a familiar station wagon, or familiar to those of us who have seen the Muppet movie, which at this point in history, nobody has yet. I, like, I get the bit, but it's all, I, right from the start, I was like, why, why is this happening? Because <laughs> everybody else has a chauffeur, including Statler and Waldorf, who are there to heckle. And Fozzie's driving the car, and everyone's in a tux, except for Fozzie, who is naked. And I just found that no, very strange. he has strange. a black tie necktie. He does have a black tie necktie, you're right. But, well, He's no, he has, neck tie. he has his regular necktie. It's just got black polka dots instead of... I think it's cute. I think it's very cute. But I definitely immediately was like, wait, poor Fozzie. <laughs> the comedian's a bear. As always, poor Fozzie. Why doesn't he have... <laughs> you know, why is he driving? Why, doesn't, why don't they get a chauffeur? Mm-hmm. I understand it's because they were doing a bit with the car from the movie that no one in the past actually understood. But, you know, it took me out of it a little bit. I also was surprised that if we're going to see this car from the movie, why don't we get the Electric Mayhem's car, bus, van, whatever it is. Right. Or the or the or painted... It, well, I guess they don't want to give away the painted Studebaker gas. Also, that car is painted so they won't be recognized. Right. Nobody, <laughs> nobody would know who they are. Although, that doesn't really help Fozzie in this instance one way or the other. People don't know who he is. Right. He, he tries to do some crowd work. And... Hey, folks! I just love the movies. Yesterday I saw a movie so bad, the popcorn walked out. Just, just think of me as the dog who plays piano. And then he yells at them. He says, you have to trust me. When I tell a joke, you laugh. Which is... I, that's not how comedy works. Yeah. Also, if he had wanted the joke to have any hope, he could have tried, I saw a movie so corny that the popcorn walked out, or the popcorn got oh. jealous. Mm. Too bad they didn't ask me. Hey, did you know that the Electric Mayhem's <laughs> bus was in the 1979 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? No, but I love that. No, but that makes that. so much sense. Yeah, that's that's good. Well, they say this is a very in party. Why do they say that? Because they won't let us out. (laughs) So one of the themes in this special, Miss Piggy is an established sex symbol at this point in history. Gary Owens refers to her specifically as such. Also, Miss Piggy is sex, is latent sex. I'm confused. Let's hear this clip. Bob, 
I just overheard you saying something about Miss Piggy's inaccessibility. What was that? I'm a little hurt because I'm her biggest fan, and I think she has more latent sex than anyone since, since Jean Harlow, and I think the least she can do for all of us who love her is to show up once in a while and make Well, Robert, as a matter of fact, the woman is inaccessible. I mean, you know where I had to go to interview her? Yesterday, I had to go poolside at the hotel. How do you have latent sex? I am... I am positive because I have to be because it's the only thing that makes sense that he meant latent sex appeal. It's still bad, but I mean, I think that's just how people in old Hollywood talked. And this is Robert Stack. I don't know if we said that. And he, you know, his career goes back to old Hollywood. So I think he's, you know, he, especially where he's specifically comparing her to Gene Harlow. I think he's like purposely using sort of old timey slang. I guess I, I don't know. It it just sounded real wrong and weird. <laughs> Look, this is a man who allegedly had a threesome with Elizabeth Taylor and JFK. If he says Miss Piggy is sex, he knows <laughs> of what he thinks. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Golly. Can I just say, from the moment that Piggy arrives, it feels like the exact moment of arrival of the like iconic version of Piggy that that we know in pr- the present day, like that. I think the movie really agree. but like, like she makes an, a big yeah. entrance multiple times. <laughs> mm-hmm. The crowd goes wild every time. And is just like her fully formed self. Yeah. You know, they, we talked earlier, Christy, you mentioned it, it's, you know, it's hard to see. It's hard to tell people are, they don't do any chirons and, usually, you know, Rita or or Dick will be like, I'm here with so-and-so, or like, hi, Peter Falk. And they don't do that here. She just says Robert. And like, I had to- I think she says Bob. Or Bob, yeah. I had to control F on the wiki (laughs) to be like, who's named Bob in this? Because I had no idea. So. He's one of Miss Piggy's biggest fans. Apparently. And he thinks that she should be more accessible in her outrageous amount of sex. Yeah, well. Anyway, we cut to Rita and Piggy poolside, or at least we we know that Piggy is poolside with her human assistant, and Rita remains off camera for this entire exchange, and presumably that's because she didn't actually film this scene at the same time as Piggy and just ADR'd her lines later. And we also see Scooter, who is making repeated phone calls for Miss Piggy and pretending to be various celebrities. Oh, that's really awfully nice of you, Miss Piggy. I know how busy you must Excuse be. Excuse me, uh, it's Frank Sinatra. Oh, oh no. Well, tell him I'm busy. Yes, Miss Piggy. He wants to do an album with me, and I just do not have the time. Wow. Do you know what I would do to make an album with Sinatra? I think so. <laughs> yowza, yowza, yowza. I gasped the first time I watched this, like, for real. <laughs> This is sort of a, a a funny inside joke in a way because apparently they had originally wanted Frank Sinatra to sing a number in the Muppet movie and he turned them down. And so here Piggy is flipping the script on him. I mean, but still. More on that in a bit. It just feels so rude to Rita. It does. Rita, who is being an awfully good sport about this whole thing, as we've said. <laughs> Yeah, and you mentioned the ADR, and like I know that that's how these things are done. It's still how they're done, but like it's so obvious and bad. And I don't want to say a bad word about Rita Moreno, but 
she just doesn't feel like she's acting in the same scene. Like apart from it sounding off, like the, you know, the audio sounding off, like it just like, if it actually, it feels like a scene from the electric company to me. (laughs) You almost wonder if Rita recorded her part first. Yeah, maybe. Right. There's just something in that case, I guess that's a little bit Frank's fault, but like, or if she just didn't even have the script, like if she only had a side with her lines on it and didn't even know what she was acting to, which that actually feels really, really plausible. It's just, it's just everything about it just is so raw. Like it's not a great scene, but like, it's not a terrible scene. And I just feel like they're not acting off each other in any way. But that piggy line is so great. It really makes me wish that I could see Rita's face for some kind of, well, I never. Yeah. Side eye at Piggy. So back at the party, Dick Van Dyke finds Sam the Eagle, who's carrying a notebook around, supposedly to make observations about this whole weirdo scene. And Dick quickly discovers that that is not the case. Sam, what do you think of the party? This is disgusting. Nothing but a bunch of shallow, superficial, depraved people. Well, if you feel that way, why are you here? To observe their weird behavior. Oh, I see, and you're taking notes, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, I I may publish an expose. May may I see them? Uh, No, no, it's uh, private. Oh, come on. No, no, please, no, 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 please. Let me have a look. Wait a minute, these are autographs. You're collecting autographs. Have you seen Walter Pigeon? He's my favorite. I like that the Muppet Wiki points out about Walter Pigeon and Sam wanting his autograph. This reflects both Sam's species and his old-fashioned tastes, because he wants a bird name (laughs) autograph. Also, I like that Wikipedia told me about what well, because I had to look up who Walter Pigeon is. Um, his father was Caleb Burpee, B-U-R-P-E-E, Pigeon, a haberdasher. I'm just pleased with this combination mm. of words. So, another motif across this special, uh, Dick points his mic at celebrities, which is better than Mike pointing his dick at celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, depends depends which mic depends which dick which celebrity yep all the above (laughs) ask walter pigeon dick van dyke talks to people and he finds that they don't have much to say we're sitting at peter falk's table uh, for a moment peter can you imagine what this place must have been like in the 30s Oh, I can't. I don't have the biggest idea. <laughs> I guess it must be like it is today. Are you interested in that uh, kind hey, of listen, thing? Hey, listen, guys, how's the food, Peter? Well, you know, that's what you should have asked me about the food. You know, the food was terrific. This terrific. Is yeah. You're looking great. Stick, keep it up. <laughs> I gotta go. The reception is going beautifully. <laughs> well, the reason I ask that is that Rita Moreno's has a special musical number coming up. I think it's the type of production number they probably did, you know, back when the Coconut Grove was the swing in his place in Hollywood. Like, Dick clearly had a place he was trying to get to. <laughs> and Frank Oz was just off camera, number. thinking, let me help. And no one told Peter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his yes ending is terrible. <laughs> And yeah, and what the hell was Fosse doing? <laughs> what? He's and they helping. left it all in? They left it all in. Yep. No second takes. Yeah. There's also a moment where Dick is talking to Phyllis Diller, and it, it seems like she's gearing up to throw an insult at him, but then she doesn't get a chance because then we cut to another awkward interview where the host is not on camera. And this one is Dick Van Dyke just happens to have run into Fozzie in front of the Chinese theater, and Fozzie's carrying some quick-mix cement as though he's going to put his paw prints along with all of his heroes. It's not funny. 
No, we didn't clip it. Uh, you know, it occurs to me, though, that's actually one of the, hearing that Peter Falk clip, one of the things that makes these bits so stand out so much. It's like, yeah, yes, the tone is weird. Yes, the Rita and Dick performances are a little bit off, but also because these are scripted and like nothing else really seems to be that they really stick out like sore thumbs. Yeah. Phyllis Diller seemed like she was really about to be funny. <laughs> then then they had to go. Can't have that. Yeah. Not this special. <laughs> There's a bit where Rita says to Miss Piggy, I can't wait to see the movie. And Miss Piggy says, you don't have to wait because here are some clips. And then is a sweet little montage. So do we think that the people in the live audience actually got to see the movie? Was yeah. this a sneak preview party for the movie? Sure. Like not the clips, but the whole movie. Yeah. That's yeah. my guess. I, I hope so. <laughs> I just feel like if that were the case, why wouldn't this be framed as the premiere of the Muppet movie? Right. Mm. That would make sense. Also, not knowing how Hollywood worked in 1979, was the movie ready to go six weeks before it premiered? I mean, probably not fully. There would have been a rough cut, I imagine. They would have been doing test screenings. Yeah. Well, didn't it premiere in the UK very shortly after this? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Without looking it up. We said it earlier. It premiered in the UK on May 31st. So, so a I little think the movie was probably ready. Now, uh, notably, the UK cut of the movie is a few minutes longer than the US cut. So they uh, had some second thoughts about some of their edits before they brought it here. Hmm. But I think it was ready enough. One more recurring motif in this special. Uh, animal chases ladies around and gooses them and they scream and Rita yells at him to stop. Uh, only to find herself being viciously attacked by Animal. And she plays it for comedy. She, like, goes behind the table and then comes up again and, like, he tackles her down. She does this very well, playing it for comedy, even though this is not funny. Animal, wait, 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 listen to me. You must stop chasing after all these women. Women! Yes, women! Jim, although you are primarily the man behind the scenes, that most of the guests here tonight seem to know you personally. Have most of them been on the Muppet Show? Well, yes, we've had 72 guest stars so far. We've done three seasons of the Muppet Show so far. I left that last bit just because it was there and it was cute. Um, but also, what a weird transition. Yeah. <laughs> but let's go back to Animal and Rita. I mean, I'm not sure that I want to say any more about it. It's even more horrifying to hear just the audio. Right, yeah, because at least Rita Moreno can sell it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a really weird moment earlier between Rita Moreno and Cheryl Ladd, um, where Rita Moreno's like, my husband wanted wanted me to get your get your number for him. And like and again, it does not seem scripted. Cheryl Ladd does not seem to know that this line is coming. You know, she's a pro, she's used to this, but it's just like you can tell she's kind of like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and then Animal attacks her, because that's the bit. It's just like... Have we seen Horny Animal much yet? Because, like, I know certainly, like, in Muppets Take Manhattan, we get Horny Animal. But I don't really feel like Animal is portrayed that way in the Muppet shows so often. Yeah, and not really in the movie either yet. It's kind of new. There's also like there's a moment where he's just like chasing some random woman through the crowd and he is like he's 
up much too high, <laughs> which like I understand how hard this was, but also it's really weird to see the bottom of animal and the top of Frank. Well, you just like having been watching the show so closely and just watching the movie where they're out in the real world constantly. And it's so good to just like see animal like flying through the air. I'm like, that's not how that that's not where he belongs. It's very strange. <laughs> Uh, our friends at Commitment pointed out when they talked about the special that, you know, he's just in a room full of humans and he is at butt level the entire time. So that must be very hard for him. Mm. A lot of butts just calling. But yeah, but all the other Muppets managed to not assault anybody. So I don't want to yeah, really give him a pass for that. Yeah. There is a page in Muppet Wiki titled Woman, Woman, Woman. <laughs> God bless, God the bless wiki. you, Muppet Wiki. <laughs> uh, and it seems as though the Muppet movie is the first time that that animal utters that and this is the second huh. well my hat is off to the Muppet Wiki so at the very end of this special the party is over the Muppets have a moment alone Kermie yeah. oh what a wonderful evening this has been hmm. you know it's kind of amazing just a little while ago this whole room was filled with Hollywood's most important talented glittering brilliant beautiful people mm, it's nice to have spent an evening with my equals uh, Kermit, are we really stars? Well, close enough. So this is all lovely, until Kermit informs everyone that they have to do the cleaning up. Now, guys, uh, let's get this place cleaned up, huh? What? Oh, well, sure. You see, they said we could save money if we cleaned up after the party ourselves. What? Sure. Now, why don't you mop, Miss Piggy? Mop! Yeah, Fonzie, you can pick up the, the tables over there. Mop! Okay, Floyd, dust up the place, huh? Mop! Are you out of your mind? Well, you don't have to, uh... Mop! Mop! Well, Are I mean, you crazy? Uh, I'm a well, superstar! No, yeah, but uh, it doesn't hurt you to do a little bit of cleaning up around the place. I'll show you. I hurt you. Come on, you guys clean up that place, all right? I have okay. my My rules is waiting. Well, that's all right. Listen, I'll wash and you dry. So that Gonzo appearance, by the way, is that the first time we've seen Gonzo this whole special? Has, I think so. Have they so. both been around? I think he's maybe in the background, but yeah, that might be his only speaking moment. Well, he's isn't he Zoot? Yeah, so there was an extended I meant, I meant Zoot Gonzo, sequence, yeah. but yeah, this we certainly haven't seen Gonzo, I'm pretty sure. So we have a lot of music, but a lot of it is stuff that we have talked about before. So we won't go too deep on things that we've previously discussed. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll throw in a little bit of context here and there um, because it's fun. So our first number in this special situation is a medley performed by who are introduced as the Muppet Monsters. So Sweetums, Dog Lion, Timmy Monster, Mean Mama, and some Mutations. Well, let's listen to how beautiful that is bound to be. <laughs> Go out and try your luck. You might be Donald Duck. Hooray for Amazingly, this is a medley of Hooray for Hollywood, which is a song that we will hear throughout the special approximately 48 times. 
And uh, I know a place, which is a Petula Clark song. Um, so Hooray for Hollywood is from 1937. It had music by Richard Whiting and lyrics by Johnny Mercer. And it's from a movie called Hollywood Hotel. And uh, there was a popular version of it in 1958 uh, by Doris Day. But again, I'm used to hearing this like, it was in the great movie ride. You know, it's, you know, they play it at the Oscars and the Golden Globes. And it's almost always sung by like a group of people, which over my lifetime has led me to misunderstand many of the lyrics I pulled up. So the first verse, which is not what they sing in this, I, I really thought that they were saying where any office boy or young mechanic can be a panic with just a good looking van which I never understood. I was like, what? I was like, what? Anyway, it's with a good looking pan, like a pan with a camera. Anyway, thing I learned hmm. today. <laughs> I mean, so a lot of the lyrics in Hooray for Hollywood are also very specific references to people who were very famous in 1937 and not very famous today. So the lyrics have a tendency to get rewritten when it's used uh, in more contemporary productions so uh you know pour one out for amy sample yeah that's the that's the lyric that threw me for a loop it's like what now of course we all remember amy sample because she was immortalized in the portrayal by carolee carmillo in the broadway musical scandalous by kathleen gifford you say that like you're joking but everything I know about history and religion comes from musical theater. So that is, in fact, why I know who Amy Semple is. <laughs> and what I haven't learned from musical theater, I've learned from The Simpsons. So as far as I'm aware, Hooray for Hollywood actually has the lyrics, guys and dolls. So I Know a Place was a pretty big hit for Petula Clark. It was written uh, by Tony Hatch, who also wrote Downtown. And uh, it was obviously an inspiration for the Sesame Street theme. They've got that same sort of, you know, do, 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 do thing going for them. And the very similar lyric idea. Yeah, it's true. And yeah, it was uh, Petula's second top 10 hit in the United States and was on the charts for 12 weeks. It uh, went as high as number three. So yeah, so in addition to this medley, there is also a sweet little reprise of Hooray for Hollywood at the end, right before the Muppets start cleaning up the Coconut Grove. So the next interesting musical feature is a performance of How High the Moon, which is a jazz standard, uh, by Peter Matz and his orchestra featuring Zoot on sax solo. Thanks, Detler and Waldorf. Yes. Yeah. Sidebar about the hubba hubba. Did anyone clock who that was? Nope. Sure didn't. I did notice, so, though, that uh, Liberace was uh, getting his entire life <laughs> during Zoot solo. He was doing the piano version of Air Guitar. It's amazing. And it looks genuinely candid. There, this is also like why I believe that, at least for part of this, the celebrities were actually watching the performances in the room there's a shot of liberace at his table and he's like he's making piano fingers on the table and it, it looks completely like he does not know he's on camera and it's delightful 
Um, and then less delightful is some woman walks past Alan Waldorf's table and they catcall her. <laughs> and I don't know if she was anybody famous or not, but ew, stop it. Yeah. So the song is a standard. Uh, we will hear it actually in uh, future seasons of The Muppet Show. Um, but quickly, it has lyrics by Nancy Hamilton and music by Morgan Lewis. It's from 1940 uh, from a Broadway review called Two for the Show. And it was a signature song for Ella Fitzgerald. And I found a truly bonkers clip from a 1967 special called A Man and His Music and Ella and Joe Beam that featured noted Joe Raposo Stan Frank Sinatra doing a medley of songs the kids like with Ella Fitzgerald that included uh, Up, Up, and Away, Ode to Billy Joe, and Going Out of My Head. And uh, the song was kind of the setup for it. It's like, oh... Like here, this is a, a normal song for us to be singing. What about the songs that the kids like? Yeah, I like those too. And it's it's really weird. We'll have it in the show notes. But we definitely want to also mention that uh, Peter Matz, who was the band leader for the special, was uh, the band leader for Carol Burnett. I got excited when I heard his name. That is exciting. Yeah, me too. It, you know, he's also uh, Barbara Streisand's arranger, uh, most notably for her very early albums and also for the Broadway album in 1985. So uh, this this is a, a, a big get for the Muppets. Two for the show. Also the name of a 1982 picture book starring Sweetums and Robin the Frog, <laughs> who are either too big or too small to feature in any of the Muppet show skits. And they end up starring in a Jack and the Beanstalk sketch. It's very sweet. Speaking of sweet, or at least what she would want us to believe is sweet, uh, we get quite the performance from Piggy. <laughs> Your poor heart is jumping. I guess I started something. She's got the cutest little baby face. She's got the cutest little baby face. She's got the cutest little baby face. She's got the cutest little Notably, Dave Goals is one of those pigs. <laughs> so we've talked about Babyface before. Uh, it was sung by Chickens in the Edgar Bergen episode in season two. Also, not uh, heard in this clip. Before Piggy sings this, she is brought out by these like bronzed, muscly dudes. She refers to them as meat. Yes. Let's go, meat. I would call them the pit crew. <laughs> yeah. And we hear an instrumental of a song called The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, which is a Roger and Hart song from a 1935 musical called Jumbo. And I know that song because there's an episode of the Dick Van Dyke show, relevant, uh, where it is sung by Vic Damone, who had a recording of it. And he was playing a character named Rick Valone. <laughs> and when he performs it, he's in the, the writer's room and Rosemary mimes that she's playing the piano for him. But it's the recording of the song, so an entire orchestra is playing, and it makes me laugh every single time I think about it. Anyway. So we've said some things about uh, Frank Oz uh, doing some not great work in this episode, but holy crap, you guys. Because <laughs> she's carried out on a uh, palanquin. I looked that up. Oh. Uh, Nicely yes, done. Like Cleopatra or, or Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> And uh, Frank has to be inside it. 
there's no there's no other thing it's not yeah. i'm pretty sure it's not an illusion and it and it is quite it is quite thick so those those burly pit crew guys are uh, quite strong and are carrying a adult human man inside <laughs> that uh that thing and he is puppeteering while lying down essentially in a coffin and it's amazing <laughs> it is incredible there's a an egyptian motif going on yeah it's a it's a it's a cleopatra bit she's dressed as cleopatra and the meat litter carriers are just not wearing much and then there is also that chorus of pigs who i'm saying egyptian motif with a question mark because i don't know what the pigs are supposed to be dressed as it's not in keeping with the egyptian theme it's something else but they're also wearing not much yeah they're they're a little more disco so this reminded me immediately of Eartha Kitt's entrance in the Broadway musical Timbuktu, which was an all-black reimagining of Kismet reset in West Africa that ran on Broadway in 1978 and was on tour at the time of this special. Uh, I'm not saying that this was a direct reference to that, but it wouldn't shock me if uh, that was at least the inspiration for this particular kind of entrance for Piggy. There's something interesting, too, about like the mix of music in this, which is true to the show, too, right? But going from How High the Moon to this, and it's true of the the background music as well. Like there's there's sort of party scenes where there's music playing. And uh, sometimes it's very sort of like jazzy, standardy, and sometimes it is really disco in a way that I feel like The Muppet Show, you know, we've has done, a, there's definitely done a few disco numbers. We've talked about them, but um, the feeling of being at a party in 1979 where there is disco playing and like there's, you know, cutaway shots of a disco ball, of a mirror ball. And then also in some scenes, there is just like some smooth jazz playing. It feels, you know, and that's the coconut grove old timey. Like I just, I was interested in the way that they kind of use that to set tone of like, it's old timey Hollywood, but also it's not 1979 and look at all these cool people who are here. I just found that very interesting. And of course, it's disco versions of old-timey songs. Well, that was, but I don't think like the the background stuff wasn't, I don't think. Right, right. It is you would be forgiven as a Mobiturgy listener for thinking that Babyface was originally a disco song since this is now the second disco rendition right. of the song we've heard. Also, I don't know that we've mentioned yet how much fun it is to cut away to various Muppets dancing with various stars. Like Janice and LeVar Burton are rocking out. Piggy is dancing with is it Charles Durning? Yeah, that I don't think that that's happened yet. But yes, we can we can talk about it now for sure. Yeah. Uh yeah, Piggy yeah. and Charles Durning are are together. Yeah. Um Christopher Reeve asks if he can cut in and she's like, "No, I'm busy." <laughs> that that is delightful. So because this is a celebration of sneak preview of premiere of question mark the Muppet movie. Several of the songs from the Muppet movie are featured. Obviously, we don't need to go into too deep a detail on that. They were written by Paul Williams and Kenneth Asher. But only one of them gets a special performance in this special. A love that just keeps growing on and on To fill each lover's heart Is this an angel's wish for man? Never before and never again. 
Mm-hmm. Heck yeah. So yeah, in case you weren't a boomer mom, uh, that was uh, Johnny Mathis. <laughs> or David. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> These two pictures are the same. <laughs> Did I do that meme right? Almost. You're close. Well, David, uh, t- tell us about Johnny Mathis. So Johnny Mathis might be your mom's favorite crooner. <laughs> He's black. He's gay. I didn't know either of those things until many, many years after first becoming acquainted with his music. Uh, it, chances are is probably his uh, most familiar song these days. It became his signature song was one of his huge hits from the late 50s. Relative to our interest, in 1957, he sang the title song for Wild is the Wind, which is a movie, uh, which got nominated for the Best Song Oscar. A week before he appeared at the Oscars to sing it, he released a Greatest Hits album, and it was such a huge hit, driven in part by his appearance in the Oscars, that it spent nine and a half years on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart, hmm. setting a record for weeks on the chart that wouldn't be broken until 15 years later when Dark Side of the Moon finally surpassed it. Wow. Hmm. Huh. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Mathis, I find, is sort of a, uh, like, love it or hate it kind of voice, like, like what you heard here, that is exactly what he sounds like on all of his songs. He, like many artists of his era, sort of played on both sides of the line between sort of trad pop and contemporary pop. So, like, I have a record of his called Johnny Mathis Sings the Hits of Today, where today is like 1968. So, he's covering songs like If and Close to You, and they don't sound all that different from the times that he sings show tunes. Anyway, he's still around, uh, although I imagine that he's mostly retired. Uh, He appears in this special because he was supposed to sing Never Before, Never Again in the actual Muppet movie, which was actually Sinatra's Sloppy Seconds. Uh, Apparently, the original idea for that scene was that Frank Sinatra would sing over the montage of Piggy running through the fields. Uh, Sinatra said no probably wouldn't have if they had asked Joe Raposo to write the score, just saying. But then they got Johnny Mathis to do it, and he recorded it. And then, I'm not sure if it was Jim or Frank, but one of them was like, you know what, I think this would be much funnier if it's Piggy kind of singing her thoughts while we see this romantic montage and she sings it badly. And so that's what we end up with in the film. And as far as I know, the pre-recording that Johnny Mathis made for the movie was never released. Uh, But we will always have the Muppets go Hollywood. I question that story a little bit only because in the movie, we actually see her sing it. He also could have recorded it before they started filming. They could have planned to play it on set. Right, right. They could have made that decision at Um, some point. Uh, This is, by the way, one of the scenes that is shorter in the American cut of the Muppet movie than it is in the British cut. I hate this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Do you hate the song or do you hate the Johnny Mathis version of the song or both? Yes. So I, (laughs) I think, I think that this is a bad song on purpose. I think that is the joke. I think that it being slightly outside of Frank Oz's range is part of what makes it very funny. Uh, and I think that doing it straight is is bad. Like I think I think it I think it's a very well written bad song, right? I think I think it's to their credit that it's a bad song because that's the joke. And I just think if you just when you when you Johnny Mathis it up, it just it's just unbearable. Yeah, it <laughs> and feels I, like Johnny Mathis is an 
in on the joke. Right. And I mean, if you if you pair it with the visuals in the movie, which I mean, we could do very easily with this audio and the movie, it might be, although it'd be funny because it would start with Miss Piggy singing and Johnny Mathis's voice coming out. Um, it would, <laughs> it would, I just don't think it would work because it would be so schmaltzy and, and serious and, and when Piggy sings it, like you understand what they're making fun of, including Miss Piggy, right? Because like she, you know, in the movie, she falls in love with him and is terrible to him movie minutes, real time hours later, right? And so that's, I think, also part of the gag. It, it was funny to me that in the special, when they just announce the song title, that gets a laugh from the crowd. Because I, I don't think the song title is particularly funny, but apparently 1979 it was. Yeah, and like I'm I'm trying to imagine like what if this was the first time I'd ever heard this? Like what what would that what would I think? I can't even imagine. Anyway, I'm with you, Adam. I don't care for the song. I I find it painful to listen to Frank Oz's version of it, even though I get that it's that way on purpose. I like Johnny Mathis's version of it, not because I think the song is good, but I think it fits with his sort of syrupy thing. But, you know, it's not like I'm downloading this from YouTube and adding it to my <laughs> my Apple Music. It is kind of fun to get to see him do his thing. And, and Rolf is playing piano for him. So, you know, that's all very cute. But Yeah, I think he does fine. And for whatever it's worth, hearing him sing it just makes me want to go and listen to Miss Piggy singing it. Because I get a kick out of that. You don't have to. In context, I I enjoy the sequence in the movie very much, but it's That's not a relief, thing I'm going to frankly. listen to on its own. Yeah. So the second song that we get from the movie uh, comes courtesy of the mayhem. Let me take your picture, add it to the mixture. Aaron is a captain now. Really nothing to it. Anyone can do it. It's easy and we all know how. Now begins a changing, mental rearranging. Nothing's really where it's at. Daddy Applecars holding up a flower again. This is just the track and from the movie, I was about right? to say, yeah. very confidently, this is the track from the soundtrack album. Yeah. I know because I have played hundreds of times because it is my favorite mm-hmm. song from the Muppet movie, unlike Never Before and Never Again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, indistinguishable yeah. from the movie. Yeah. Yes. The only th- thing I really have to say about this is this is the song in the Muppet movie that sounds most like stereotypically Paul Williams-y to me. Like, it very much sounds of a piece with Ain't No Hole in the Wash Tub from Emmett Otter and the finale of Bugsy Malone. Like, there's just, like, a certain thing that Paul Williams likes to do when he does it here and honestly does it best here. Yeah. I hear that especially in sort of the drum and bass line, which also is just sort of what this moment in movie music was doing and will continue to do through the mid-80s. Just the, like, I don't know, the heavy snare and, like, the very electric bass I like that. I like it. But it's also very Paul Williams. Yeah. This bouncing little groove. I remember when we talked about Emma Daughter, we talked about the um the River Bottom Nightmare Band song is basically the exact same song. Yeah. Yeah. There there's a, a quality to that too. Um it's basically like if you took that song and the wash tub song and like mashed them up, you'd basically mm. have this. <laughs> yeah. I love it so much. It rocks hard. 
so because this is 1979, you knew that disco was going to make an appearance, not just in the form of Babyface. Oh, Christopher, not now, please. Bug off. <laughs> This was definitely the weirdest rabbit hole that I went down uh, doing research for this. <laughs> There's a song called Boogie Motion that is credited to a band called Beautiful Bend. And if you go looking for information about Beautiful Bend, you won't really find it because they weren't really real. They were a studio outfit uh, assembled by a producer named Boris Midney. And Boris Midney was a... Soviet-born producer, composer, arranger who uh, defected to the U.S. in 1964 via the American Embassy in Japan. I only mention that because as a fan of musical chess, any sort of weird defection story is interesting to me. And he made his name as a disco producer and is mostly known to some audiences today as the guy who did disco blank. Uh, like he did the disco version of Evita and he did the disco version of Star Wars. And yes, I brought a clip of that because how could I not? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and, and yeah, this, this uh, is the music playing during the aforementioned dance sequence. Uh, we talked about the the various disco people already, um, but I ju- I just need to talk about Christopher Reeve for a second. Um, we will talk about him more when we get to his episode. I was not going to make gifts for this because, as we've discussed, the print is not very good. And the moment that I changed my mind was this shot. Uh, early in this sequence before we heard in the clip of Christopher Reeve just sitting at his table like chair dancing to the disco and just looking like the biggest fucking dork on the planet (laughs) and this was what a year after Superman came out two years so you know he's at like the height of his fame the height of his hotness but also just like such a doofus and it was the most endearing thing and I was like well I have to make a gift of that so I guess I'll make some gifts (laughs) It's I love it so much. And then he does end up he does end up dancing with Piggy after she sends him away. Um and they uh they have a really great sequence together. It's just great. I I wish there were more of him in this, but I know we have more of him to come on the show, so I'll I'll be patient. This is positively the last Hollywood party I'll ever go to. Oh yeah, what about Rocky Y'all Welch's party tomorrow night? What time do you want me to pick you up? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think What's you were dancing. <laughs> So much to my delight, uh, Dick Van Dyke gets a number in this, and it is a serenade of Miss Piggy. You know, you really are my kind of a woman. Oh, silly boy, I'm everyone's kind of woman. Ah. 
there's just something about you. You really belong in this town. I mean, you ought to be in pictures. Oh, yeah. You're wonderful to see. Oh, Richard. You ought to be in pictures. Yes. Ah, what a hit. You would be. So this is a song called You Ought to Be in Pictures from 1934, uh, written by uh, Dana Swiss and Edward Heyman, uh, and made a hit by Rudy Valley. And uh, yeah, it's one of those songs that is sort of like a go-to signal of 1930s Hollywood, much in the way of Hooray for Hollywood. But this is very sweet. It is. They're really into each other. Also, he does this very sweet thing where, like, Piggy whips around and a bunch of her hair is in her face. And he starts sweeping the hair out of her face while Piggy does this little spitting it out thing. It's it's nicely done. So in the middle of this number, we get a montage of photos of Miss Piggy uh, in various styles, uh, many of which seem to be specific references to older movies. Um, It turns out these are all photos from the Miss Piggy calendar of 1980, uh, which was the first of a series of Miss Piggy calendars. And uh, it was a project primarily made by Michael K. Frith, who is a Muppet designer who we've talked about occasionally in the past. And uh, I think of as uh, among other things, sort of the grandfather of the Muppet babies with Frank Oz, obviously being as a important creative consultant on this. Miss Piggy's wardrobe was provided by the House of Callista, which is Callista Hendrickson, who also provided most of Miss Piggy's outfits throughout the Muppet Show. Um, she's also the person who designed and built the babies in Bobby Benson's baby band. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> uh, and the photos were taken by Nancy Moran and Donald Hallway. I did make a gif of the photo montage so that'll be on our webpage if you want to see it oh nice Not watching the special because these are gorgeous photos i i'm looking forward to having access to this gif i have i don't have this calendar but i do have a book i feel like i have something related to this somewhere i will look yeah i mean i know i've seen these i mean these photos have been reused many many times over the years and if uh, anyone is listening and wants to to have them for their very own. Uh, There are nice high quality scans of each of them on Muppet Wiki on the Miss Piggy calendar 1980 page. What a great wiki. Yeah, our next song needs no introduction whatsoever. (laughs) We'd written almost the whole song, but we didn't have that that payoff line, which we knew would be the title. And uh, we were frustrated, frankly. And a lady that I know very well said, uh, what's the problem? You're, you're having difficulty finding that, that rainbow connection between uh, people and their dreams. And we said, the rainbow connection? We raced into the, to the uh, studio and, and wrote this song for Kermit. And so we've been told and some choose to believe it. I know they're wrong. Wait and see Someday we'll find it The rainbow connection The lovers, the dreamers, and me
that calls the young sailors, the voice might be one and the same. Oh, man. Yeah. For that one little bit, this entire weird fiasco was worth it. There's something about that transition from Paul Williams to Kermit and I think it's the strings, but it's not like I haven't heard those strings hundreds of times that just gets me every time, and I can't explain it. Yeah, I have a thing where pe- people expect me to have a certain reaction to this song, and I've heard it so many times that as an adult, I'm just inured to it. And then this explanation from Paul Williams talking about the rainbow connection between people in their dreams, it's just been getting me every time I hear it. I'm like, ugh. Damn it. Damn it. After all this time, now I'm crying at Rainbow Connection. <laughs> I'm mad about it. Uh, meanwhile, I'm I'm mad that uh, that's not the note that we get to end on. One more number to talk about. Thankfully, Rita Moreno gets a number. Unfortunately, it's this. <laughs> Yeah, so this is mostly a song called I, 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 uh, which was a Carmen Miranda song from a movie called That Night in Rio from 1941, uh, written by Matt Gordon and Harry Warren. And uh, then there's a little bit of Tico Tico, which uh, we heard Annie Sue do in the Gene Stapleton episode of The Muppet Show. Um, yeah. Rita is very, very good at shaking what her mama gave her. I mean, are you are you going to dispute me on this? Or you, is the no. silence agreement? <laughs> no, we, we agree. She does uh, a good job with whatever this is. Yeah. So if you dig way back in your memories to uh, one of our very first episodes when we talked about Rita Moreno, we talked about how uh, in the 70s, she the Tony of her EGOT came for her performance in The Ritz, where she played a character named Googie, who had this sort of uh, over-exaggerated accent. Uh, And that's basically the character that she's doing in this number. Uh, Even though it's two Carmen Miranda songs, she's really doing Googie doing Carmen Miranda. So I think in the context of the 70s, when that was fresher in people's minds, and she also did uh, reprise the role in the movie of the Ritz, this might have made a little more sense to people. Was there a Carmen Miranda Coconut Grove connection? Uh, I mean, I don't know about Carmen Miranda specifically with the Coconut Grove, but she certainly did perform at places like the Coconut Grove. Right. And like in almost every Carmen Miranda movie, she has at least one number that is done on a nightclub stage just like this. Possibly with palm tree scenery as, as this does. Yes. Yes. Um, so, Chrissy, I, I, I put this in the outline thing that you would run with it because it's so your bread and butter, but uh, I do have some best original song Oscar trivia related to Matt Gordon and Harry Warren. Yeah, the I figured I would, I would of, like you to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
so Matt Gordon was nominated for Best Original Song nine times in 11 years, including five consecutive years between 1940 and 1944. Uh, and he only won the award once for the song You'll Never Know, uh, which was written with Harry Warren. Uh, Harry Warren, remembered as the first major American songwriter who wrote primarily for film, uh, he wrote 42nd Street and a bunch of the other uh, Warner Brothers musicals of that era. Um, he was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Song 11 times, and he won three uh, for Lullaby of Broadway, You'll Never Know, and On the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. Uh, so I hope I did not just get a number of you quite drunk. <laughs> They're just playing bingo. They're just stamping their bingo cards left and right. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Love to hear it. Matt Gordon was the pre-Diane Warren, Diane Warren. Except that he won. (laughs) Wow. I mean, she still can. She's still still writing, doing her thing. She received an Oscar this year. Uh, Not a real one. (laughs) I I phrased it how I phrased it on purpose. (laughs) Excuse me, not a competitive one. (laughs) Honorary Oscars are real. Rude. So listen, I like Diane Warren. Uh, I think she keeps getting nominated either for the wrong song or uh, having the bad luck about who she's nominated against. Yes. Anyway, uh, that is the last song that we have to talk about. So I think we're going to move on to our final thoughts about this episode. Well, speaking of Diane Warren, who should have won an Oscar for uh, You Haven't Seen the Last of Me for Cher's movie Burlesque. Uh, we didn't talk about the fact that the the special was choreographed by Anita Mann, who Jim Henson and company met while working on the Share Show, um, the variety show, not the Broadway musical, <laughs> and uh, who would go on to choreograph the Great Muppet Caper, and that that feels slightly notable. And Solid Gold, which uh, is only relevant because I have very strong memories of watching. Uh, like the last five minutes of Solid Gold before The Muppet Show came out when I was a kid. <laughs> nice. Excellent. But yes, Anita Mann, a real person. Yes, not not a fake. Not a drag not queen. A drag queen. Yeah. <laughs> not an unoriginal drag queen. Hey, when do you think's a good time to leave this party? About an hour ago. Oh! <laughs> an hour ago! An hour ago! Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. We'll be back in a few weeks, give or take, to start off Season 4 with the John Denver episode of The Muppet Show. But in the meantime, you can hear all four of us as the guest stars on The Great Muppet Fandom Panel, which is a Tough Pigs podcast. Uh, and you should search for Muppet Fan Podcast by toughpigs.com in your podcast app of choice. Or go look at our social media to find the link to listen to that. Uh, It was a special episode where we talked about who the best friend of the Muppets might be. And I think we had a lot of fun doing it. We hope you have a lot of fun listening to it. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Ryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Um, actually, it's not a Studebaker. It's the second car from the movie. Do I have to take it again? <laughs> no, you don't. I think you just leave me being a dick about it. <laughs>